0: Jack Grealish is like taking the Freddie Flintoff Ashes 05 mantle here and just <laughs> <absolutely>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> We miss people like Paul Gascoigne Enjoy him
0: Subscribe now
2: to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app The Sunday Papers
1: on Off The Ball
0: Now, great to have you with us on the Sunday Paper Review. Joe Malloy with you this afternoon. In studio, we have Sarah Donovan, All Ireland winning camogie player. We have Kieran Shannon of the Irish Examiner on the line. I'll just run through the headlines, first of all. As you can imagine, it's a final bonanza. So, Sun Sport here, first of all, I'll go from the uh, top. So, it's Ron Nogara, and he is uh, giving a fist pump in one picture, and then in the other, it's a great picture of. Uh, him and his wife Jess uh, grabbing each other and hug and kiss and somewhere in the stand at full time and just the ecstasy you can imagine because it's been a hell of a journey for him and I'm sure the family as well all over the world so uh, what a moment. Heineken, Champions Cup winner as a player and now as a coach. So I think we're watching pretty something something pretty special here in O'Gara. Not that uh, that's breaking news. And then beneath that Champions League final, as you can imagine, Liverpool nil, Real Madrid won. It's a picture of Vinicius Junior running away and celebrating. And then alongside that, pictures of fans just outside the stadium. The big shutout supporters gather behind lock gates. Liverpool fans here disgusted at what happened last night. Another picture, chaos, Reds react to tear gas before kickoff, and it's um, fans covering their their faces with their jerseys. Uh, Sunday Mirror then. They have a picture of Johnny Sexton and Andrew Porter at full-time yesterday just here. It's a case of the Blues for Johnny and Leinster and then beneath that, again, Real Madrid celebrating and it's Klopp's treble up in smoke as Carlos Real rule Europe. Then we have the Sunday World. Invincible VIN in red for uh, Vinicius Jr. and his finish invincible. Real Madrid won, Liverpool nil. And then we have Dubs blitz the Lilies at Croker with five goals. I mean, that was a non event, which we'll uh, come to in a moment. Sunday Times, pain in Paris. Great picture of Vinicius Jr. running away celebrating. And then we have uh, the story alongside that about the crowd trouble. Fans uh, pepper sprayed in crowd fiasco before uh, Liverpool lose Champions League final. Seen conflicting reports about whether it was pepper spray or tear gas. Certainly tear gas is quoted. Others are saying there was no tear gas there was pepper spray. Either way not a great situation I suppose. And then the back page of the Mail on Sunday. Les Miserables and it's a picture of Mo Salah on his honkers hands on his head. It's a great photo actually and just captures that moment at full time where nothing more can be done. Paris pain for Poole as chaos outside ground Mars decider and then above that we have hands on hips for Leinster players James Ryan there end game agony for Leinster as Raj does it again and finally the Sunday independent it's uh, Mo Salah dropping to his knees and smashing the ground I would think that is by the looks of it that's after he took that amazing first touch for the long ball over the top and another touch, another touch, and shot with his right foot. It just—it was one of those moments where you thought, well, that's a goal. And Courtois saves it because you have Courtois uh, jumping up and it looks like uh, one of the Real Madrid players celebrating it like a goal. And and Salah just can't believe it. That kind of sums up the night perfectly, doesn't it? Courtois afterwards talking about how there's no, no respect beside his name in England, which is kind of something as well. And beneath that, the uh, written piece is Brendan Fanning, Keane Tracy over in Marseille. Devastated Sexton laments lost chance and it is a lost chance for Johnny Sexton and Leinster for sure. Well, two European finals. I guess we start there. They're in all the front pages, Sarah. Do we start with the game or do we start with the chaos outside the game over in Paris?
1: I think the chaos outside the game, let's be honest. It took so long for the game to begin. You couldn't avoid the chaos and I suppose watching from my seat on the sofa I felt very nervous for those Liverpool fans because the pitchers don't lie. They were squashed behind fences. Mm. They were showing their tickets. They were trying to get in. The sense of panic by everyone, even the commentators. It was just the fear of what could go wrong. And I was very uncomfortable sitting there waiting for the match. Um, I'm glad that I didn't have any Liverpool fans or friends there that I knew of because I would have been worried, you know, to the point of massive anxiety, I think.
0: Yeah. Number of pieces. Kieran, anyone grab your eye?
2: Yeah, I thought thought Rob Draper... um I think he captured it because um, I suppose one thing that really struck me was the amount of reporters that were able to turn around and go into such detail on the chaos that happened. Rob Draper has both tweeted, but also he has an extensive piece in the mail, uh, which would be pages 70 and 71 uh, in the Irish edition. And basically it just seemed to be both excessive uh, force, obviously by the the French police, but also just... uh, completely inept as event management. And he talks about how there was this bottleneck created by vans being uh, in the run, you know, parked in an inappropriate place. And he could already anticipate that this was um, gonna create a chain of of, uh, events that would lead to chaos. And that's exactly what transpired. And he goes through it in in a lot of detail as to just how shambolic it was and the abstinence of the police so i mean it, it's just frightening how i'd imagine for like this isn't as sarah said this is bigger than the event and thankfully i suppose we can uh, we can say that nobody was killed because unfortunately we've had echoes of this with liverpool in major games including european finals um you know like Like I suppose we didn't see the footage because it was outside the stadium, whereas in Heysel we saw inside the stadium, we saw Hillsborough aspects of it, obviously. Um, And just like this is the Liverpool um, fan base again. And, you know, the way that the French police and some of the statements from UEFA, you know, were spinning out that this was because of fans, that, that the fans were to blame on this. Like you know, it, it has been pointed out, all right, that you know some fans may have been trying to get access without proper ticketing, but you know you, that's where you like we, we go to major events everywhere, and you know that's why there's certain checkpoints at, at certain spots to minimise the chances of that yeah. being an impediment. So it's 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 uh, a logistical nightmare. Just the, the fortunate thing is is that. Um, nobody was hurt but by the same ex- extent like the, the, the trauma that you know children being peppergasted, like sarah was pointing out earlier just before we went on air like a a great former player who scored when liverpool and, and madrid last played in the european C- cup final in madrid Alan kennedy could not get into the ground you know like um, family relatives of the players cut their losses and went away when you know you know how hard it was to clamor for that final it's one of the most coveted tickets in world sport And UEFA, as much as the French police, there's questions, obviously, UEFA have to ask of the police, but, I mean, I would say that the most, you know, serious questions have to be asked of UEFA.
0: Well, absolutely. So in Rob Draper's piece, which you mentioned in the Mail on Sunday, for instance, he was talking about his experience. He said, as you got within 100 yards of the Stade de France, the bottlenecks began. Incredibly, the police had parked three vans to block a walkway. The reason was unclear. It was obvious what would ensue. The buildup of fans was growing I and mean, even that's just a terrifying yeah. situation. At 7.05 p.m. I first spoke to police in French and told them it was dangerous to move the fans. Most just shrugged. Some tried to help. There were children and blind fans trying to negotiate their way through a three meter gap. As I grew more frustrated, it seemed clear to me what was going to happen. One policeman agreed to call his boss. Yet again, why wasn't there anyone in authority here able to move the vans And prevent the danger. A few journalists have talked about those vans being parked in a very strange space and given just three metres for fans to enter at one particular part of the stadium. And on the next page, Joe Bernstein. Again, you mentioned this, uh, Kieran, or alluded to it. Among those affected was Liverpool's 1981 European Cup match winner Alan Kennedy. He had to be helped over a fence near the stadium to avoid trouble. Uh, Marvin Matti, brother of Liverpool defender Joe, had to flee with his pregnant wife and took refuge in a nearby restaurant after police used tear gas, he says. Spain's sports minister, Jose Manuel Franco, resorted and report, reported, rather, he'd been among those caught up in de- the delays. I was an hour 100 metres from the stadium, he said. And uh, Bernstein goes on to report, some of the supporters who had paid 125 pence for a ticket eventually gave up trying to get in to see their team play in the Champions League final. Uh, Some of the videos uh, do show the police being very heavy handed in situations where it didn't require that at all.
1: Gary Lineker as well was tweeting, saying, you know, we're not late. We just can't get in. We've been here for over two hours. You know, this is the wrong narrative that UEFA are putting out. He was amongst the crowd. He wanted people to know that this wasn't their fault. And I think, unfortunately, to be caught up in that, it was also important for them to be able to give truth to the story, because obviously UEFA were trying to change the narrative.
0: Yeah, and they were booed, I think, when they initially put a, a statement up about fans being late to the game as being the issue. So, front page of the Sunday Times, Paul Rowan here and Hamza Kalik Lunat reporting here. Liverpool fans were pepper-strayed by French police amid chaotic scenes in the build-up to the Champions League final. Uh, From the start, of which was delayed by more than 30 minutes, 1,000 supporters unable to enter the stadium. Liverpool fans blamed stewarding arrangements, long delays in getting into the ground and heavy-handed police tactics for the trouble. UEFA initially said the game had been delayed because of the late arrival of fans. There were also reports of large numbers of ticketless supporters trying to enter the stadium and crushes developing, though there were no reports of any serious injuries. Video footage on social media showed police pepper-spraying supporters who were stuck outside a locked gate at one end of the ground which fans said was supposed to be open to let them in. The uh, trouble cast a poll over the final, which Liverpool lost 1-0. Chris Sutton was among those outside the stadium and commented, coming in, there was a lot of shoving and pushing. There were fans trying to get through because there were ticket checks and there were some fans who didn't have tickets and they were the ones causing the problems. It was quite harrowing for a lot of people and it was taking far too long to get through. The big issue in this is that there were a lot of fans trying to get in who didn't have tickets and there's an element of responsibility from these fans not to try and get in and do the right thing Um, of course there is but i suppose a ticketless fan turning up at events is not a new phenomenon and as kieran mentioned generally you have to allow for human nature in these instances and you have checks further away from the stadium we've all had to show tickets, you know, a mile, two miles from a stadium to get into the initial perimeter. And why that wasn't the case in Paris is hard to fathom, really.
1: Around Croke Park, you can't get past the the top of the road, you know what I mean? And, And it's frustrating if some lad's waiting in the Croke Park Hotel with the ticket for you. But if it avoids this kind of situation, then it's imperative that these barriers are in place.
0: The turnstile is not the point for checking the tickets. Yeah, we've all had to ring someone and say, can you come down? I'm at the bottom of the road. I can't get any further. Any Can you leave your stay. pint? Yeah, uh,
1: absolutely. Uh,
0: Jim Beglin, by the way, tweeted this isn't in the newspapers, although it's a, you know it's a, the extent to which Twitter is um, such a source here is very evident in that lots of the papers have screen grabs of tweets by uh, very reliable sources. So Jim Beglin, he tweeted just three hours ago, he said post-match because post-match was a real problem as well, it seems, last night. Post-match last night was the scariest thing I've ever experienced. So... Jim Beglin says organized gangs said about mugging departing fans. We ran a gauntlet of thuggery on our way to the metro. Not a police officer in sight witnessed so many ambush attacks on unsuspecting attendees. Reprehensible UEFA. That's another chilling thought. So it seems post-match, the security and the arrangements were beyond ridiculous. And whilst we saw scenes of riot police uh, liberally using a bat on and, and people who didn't seem to be causing trouble on the videos I saw. You have no police officer inside on the walk to the metro and the gangs thinking, well, free lunch.
1: That's absolutely frightening. Yeah. I, I couldn't imagine wanting to attend an event like that, knowing that my security or my safety was going to be,
0: you know, an mm. issue. Start to France, Kieran, has hosted a lot of big events down the years.
2: True. I mean, you know, you were looking at the atmosphere there yesterday and you were, you were thinking of, you know, the athletics routine for... Ireland to go over there every two years or you know like it's it's it, it's I suppose like I mean one thing again that has to happen like is there has to be an investigation as to why this happened and um, and you know you UEFA have to hold the French police to accountability obviously they weren't the first choice but as you said it's a, it's a city and a venue that is used to major events and sporting events so it's, it, it's, I mean, even just that point about what happened afterwards, you know, it, it, it is frightening. And um, I suppose, yeah, like again, like it, I suppose it does show like Sarah was making the point about Crow Park. I mean, you know, the whole, we maybe take for granted and I suppose we're coming out of COVID, you know, it's great to be back in mass stadiums and, and going to mass events again. You know, there there is a lot that goes into them, but um, you know, like, like you take the french police seem to have been incompetent right um but then for them to use essentially violence on on innocent parties that's right it, it would have been one thing if there was a mess up in general but then to resort to tear gas right? It, it, it's just um you know like uh, like paris got the event and um, you know, obviously, it it was meant to be. Um, obviously, because of the war, it, it it had to be moved. But you know, it it's it obviously was a shambles, and that that should be remembered. That you know, like every city gets the like Paris would uh, feature for major events like between Europa League finals or or that. But I mean, there has to be uh, again, UEFA have to hold the French police to account here as to what happened. But UEFA itself has to be held to account because. Uh, That was a shambolic event last
0: night. Yeah, and you do see the pictures. You see such an age, or a range in age rather. Like I'm looking here on the front page of the Sunday Times. There's definitely a kid who's about 12 covering his face and a woman who maybe looks early 20s and then the kid's father and then probably grandfather and they're just standing behind the bars and holding up tickets as if to say, what's going on? You know, like you could imagine the outrage. So I don't know how they made such a mess of that. That's uh, Mm. extraordinary and like ticketless fans aside, there's no sense of misbehaviour or no, uh, and, and, rushing to get and, in or, or anything which, you know, UEFA could almost cling to as what would be uh, just a blatant excuse that they, there's no evidence of any of that.
1: Well, the Liverpool end was practically empty, Yeah. you know, 15 minutes before eight o'clock and I'm sitting there going, OK, there's clearly a disparity here between the stadium and what's happening outside, because you couldn't deny that it was empty. So where were all the fans who had travelled? So you know, there definitely was a problem. So to suggest that it was fans arriving late yeah. who have categorically denied this and said they were two, two hours, 20 minutes waiting to get in.
0: Yeah, this wasn't a last pint around the corner. No. And we'll get the last five minutes of the minor match. I mean,
1: too many, too many seats empty for the Liverpool fans to be blamed for this. it
0: be interesting to see if there are any repercussions. I don't know what they might be. As for the match itself, uh, reports a plenty. Anything grab your eye in particular?
2: The thing that Graham Ihey was just a, a little piece that went alongside a little stat piece beside Jonathan Orcroft's uh, match report which was zero. The number of shots on target Real Madrid had before Vinicius Jr. scored in the 59th minute. I mean, you know, we can be usually prisoners to the result, you know? Like Liverpool uh, like you just mentioned at the top of the show, Joe Courtois, like he was. I tell you, I I, I didn't think he was disrespected in England. He he was signed by by a champion club in, in Chelsea. Um, when it was his decision to leave. It wasn't like he was offloaded. So I think he was respected in the English game. But you know, he certainly has its full respect now because he was he was the difference. And that along with you know and all like and he's a fantastic player to watch and a, just a fantastic player in general. But. You know that old little foible of, of Trent Alec- Arnold Alexander again, where he just was caught ball watching. You know, just basic man ball positioning caught again, and Vinicius, You know, their first shot and goal counted. I, I suppose then there was though the, you know, the Benzema goal that was disallowed. I I still can't get an explanation. I coach that myself. I, I I I can't get an explanation as to how that wasn't a goal and because
0: um, it wasn't deliberate.
2: Yeah, that was what we were told. I mean, the notion that, um, but it, it was, you know, like, so you have a situation where Liverpool, you could say we're unlucky, but Liverpool got lucky. They got a break over that because, and, you know, it's a pity for Liverpool in a sense that, it, like that, you know, they didn't get that third trophy, uh, but it's still been an outstanding season for them. And, they help make the season, you know, that they've kept. And I suppose we're, we're going to go in later to maybe the sports-washing piece and, and the business post. But, you know, just that they've made the the Premier League title chase so exciting. They've made it a chase and they've had an outstanding season, but only two out of four, as it turns out.
0: Mm. Yeah, the um, Jonathan Northcroft uh, piece talks about uh, Madrid deserved it, he says for Liverpool that was as harsh as anything given their superior possession their 24 shots to Real Madrid 3 and the typical courage and effort they showed in their game however sport often comes down to whose strategy is more decisive and Madrid executed Ancelotti's counter-attacking game plan with an efficiency that eluded Jurgen Klopp's team when it was their turn to get to scoring positions Klopp certainly post-match talked about his midfield being a bit deep and they were wary of the counter-attack and he was he was saying maybe if we played more in formation and had men further at the pitch more often. That was his regret, it seemed, afterwards, based on his post-match interview. In the 59th minute, says Norcroft, came a goal that stood, as opposed to the Benzema one, uh, which was Real Madrid in a nutshell, the most canny, cruelly, lethal counterpuncher since Muhammad Ali came off the ropes to drop George Foreman in, Zaire. On Alexander-Arnold, uh, Henry Winter, for instance, has a whole piece on Alexander-Arnold. He says he won't start for England at the World Cup, as Gareth Southgate-Curie does not believe that what he brings in playmaking qualities outweighs lingering defensive deficiencies. It's going to count against Alexander-Arnold because for sure, uh, when it came to the goal, it's so obviously his man. He clocks him initially. He knows there's a man outside him. Certainly on commentary, Steve McManaman made the point, well, look, you have to open out your body a touch. You have to be aware of Vinicius at all times. And he stays square to him and it's a cross come shot situation and, and he's done and it's a horrible moment because for the rest of the game he made some brilliant tackles, he cut out crosses, I thought he defended really well and you know the point that's often made about, oh, he's caught out of position? Like, how long are people going to watch Liverpool for before they realise maybe it's the plan? And for a lot of the game, he pushed forward and was having a huge say in proceedings and Kanade was just stepping over to the right-hand side and ragdolling Vinicius and it was working beautifully. OK, there's always the chance ball over the top, Vinicius. Might get in, but um, like I thought, Alexander Arnold, one or two points of delivery could have been better, and you know he's he's so good in those departments. Anytime he doesn't have a cross that's on the money, you can be disappointed in him. But I thought, in the main, he contributed brilliantly to the game for Liverpool. <laughs> and yes, that moment, that moment, that moment is what Gareth Southgate's going to weigh up because Southgate's on the record as saying international tournaments are won by defenses. Southgate will now look at Alexander Arnold and say, unfortunately. 90 minutes of good work undone by that moment and you're gone and I guess he's vindicated because this is the final this is the type of moment Segate's planning
2: that's, for that's the nature of, of of soccer like you know like it's not like where you know in other sports where like it, particularly in the nature of that game because like this happened in last year when they played uh, this has happened to them before when they played Madrid in, in big games in recent years as well so you know it's, it's not it, because it's well, he brings so much forward to it, it it is in those moments that it comes down to as you said so it has identified you know like soccer is a game where it comes down to just a goal or two it's not like like watching the nba playoffs luka Doncic is this phenomenal offensive player and so his de- defensive deficiencies are ultimately outweighed by what he creates on an offense but in soccer where a game is hinged on a goal or two you know it, it is it is usually costly i i mean you'd love for him to be playing because he, he, as you said, Joe, he brings so much going forward. There's been debates about is that ultimately his best position, could he go, you know, in, in, into midfield more, but, um, you know, that is just a little flaw and you would like to think that that would be coached or that he would, it would be worked on and um, it possibly is, but it's, it it showed up at the highest level in, in, in the biggest game. So, yeah, it, like it, it was ultimately the difference, that goal.
1: But, defences, win games, forwards decide by how much and, you know, two amazing saves by Cortes and obviously Real Madrid are able to capitalise on those. So we can't deny that ultimately as much as he gives going forward as you both said, his his role, his first role as a defender.
0: Mm. Yeah. So that's the football. The pages are adorned with predominantly pictures of Johnny Sexton looking disappointed. That's the man the photographers honed in on. So there's a like, fantastic Shot here, well, not if you're Leinster, I suppose. But you just inside the Sunday Independent when I'm presuming Sexton just got his losers medal and he's walking by the trophy and he just has his hand on his head. He's not even looking at the trophy, and he is as aware as anyone that at 36, with the South African sides coming in next year, in his last season for Leinster next year, what a gold and opportunity. It just felt all season as if Leinster were preordained champions. They were playing so well. And yet, La Rochelle and Raj have done something spectacular here. Like, O'Gara's coaching career is extraordinary. I mean, like, his CV by the year gets more impressive. I should say Sarah Donovan has worn red today. For O'Gara and for Cork. Uh, <laughs> Admitted as much off air. I mean, there's, the, you're very much in the Raj camp, so um, where, where where do you want to go in the papers? Because Raj gets plenty of love here as well. Like, this is this is very much uh, a story of Leinster's loss and O'Gara's success. Uh,
1: the most interesting part for me, and it's picked up in the papers, is actually the sound bites from Raj after the match and his general honesty about where they were, where they wanted to get to. Um, I, I just felt that. Uh, the narrative, and I suppose being about Leinster kind of missing a step here and Johnny Sexton, the opportunity for a fifth star, Keena Healy's hundred appearance, you know, for Leinster, all of these things were brewing a storm for Leinster to cap up an almost perfect season and Raj ruined it all. And I don't know if he gets enough credit in the newspapers for that, if I'm being honest. But the pictures, which are quite small, if I'm being honest, of Rog celebrating versus the size of the pictures of uh, Johnny Sexton being absolutely traumatized, um, suggests that Raj doesn't get the credit again in the the papers on a Sunday.
0: That is the most cork nonsense (laughs) ever heard. Do you hear this? This is this is uh, like uh, this is how siege mentalities are created. Oh, my God.
1: Absolutely built.
0: Well, let me just try and counter that. Irish legend comes up with flawless game plan (laughs) Ian McGeekin. I mean, not, he's not getting... How small? The picture's too small, is the complaint. <laughs> the picture is small, I'll give you that. <laughs> uh, so, Ian McGeeken here is talking about an Irish legend in Ogara coming up with a flawless game plan. Bernard Jackman, on the next page, this is in the Sunday Independent, French hit Leinster where it hurts the most. So, La Rochelle find perfect formula to disrupt Europe's most potent attack. So, what Jackman says is, he quotes uh, Jacques Nienabar, the current Springbok head coach and of course was at Munster at Razz- Erasmus and he would always say look rugby is a game of continuous contests that's what makes rugby completely different than other contact sports there are over 800 contests in the average game of rugby and Jackman says that Leinster en route to the final in Marseille had managed to make games look like they were no contest uh, but La Rochelle the new kids on the block in terms of European royalty made sure they won the contest that mattered and dominated the match on all the key metrics apart from penalties conceded And he reminds us that La Rochelle only came back to the top 14 in 2014. So he says it was a tactical masterclass by Ronan O'Gara and Dunneke Ryan, two men who at the end of their Munster careers would have seen Leinster under Joe Schmidt start to pull away as the dominant force in Irish rugby. Uh, He says, Leinster may regret some poor exits and ill-discipline that gave La Rochelle territory, but in terms of guts and character, they should have no regrets. They defended their line against surge after surge from big French forwards until eventually the dam broke and the game was snatched away from them. And Jackman adds, no team has managed to knock Leinster's attacking game out of its stride as much as La Rochelle did yesterday. They brought line speed, caught the men in blue behind the gain line time after time again, and then their power and aggression in the tackle made the rook ball slow, which allowed them get off the gain line and bring that line speed again. Gibson Park, who's been getting the ball in the plate all season, was forced to dig the ball out from a pile of bodies or back away from the Larouschel forward that was flying through. The Breakdown so tactical masterclass is the verdict of McGeeken and Jackman for one.
1: What I'd loved was actually the honesty which Rod had after the match, which Jackman picks up and he says, Rod said after the match that Retier is an average scrum half, an average winger, but a brilliant rugby player. Know,
0: that's an amazing <laughs> comment!
1: Amazing comment. How does
0: Retier feel this morning?
1: <laughs>
0: it's two averages, <laughs> one amazing.
1: But he's being honest to a fault, you know, and but he recognized that he had an option there. He used the option. The option paid off.
0: Yeah. Neil Francis, Leinster's plan and issues at the scrum ended up costing them dearly. He says uh, of Leinster, the bottom line is that they are a set piece side masquerading as a team of spontaneity. He said, uh, Leinster have been a seasoned ticket holder on the line of least resistance against pretty much every other team in Europe and they can bob and weave and play to whatever tempo they like. But if the referee has blown the whistle because one of the opposition players is injured, then it takes the fizz out of the game. And it's a theme in Neil Francis' piece that he talks yeah. about the statico nature of the game. He says, it got even worse in the second half at one stage with about 20 minutes to go. La Rochelle had three players rolling around on the ground. They should have coordinated their injury breaks a little better. Uh, he says, Leinster probably thought the cup was theirs when Thomas Laval saw yellow in the 64th minute, but they lost their composure and their focus. He does say, by the way, that unlike, for instance, Jackman and McGeeken, Francis says, I won't say it was a master plan on O'Gara's part because what La Rochelle did yesterday is not a blueprint for beating Leinster unless you have a monster pack. Thus, nobody who saw that game will point on the screen and say they've had a eureka moment. Uh, Leinster have consistently outmuscled and outplayed far bigger packs, which is interesting. They've outmuscled bigger packs, but none of them had the resilience and persistence which Larishel Ro- uh, La uh, displayed. So that's kind of an interesting point. That it's it's not just Larishel's uh, size here, is what Neil Francis is saying. And of course, I mean, for Leinster post their win in Bilbao in 18, it's been Saracens twice, and it's been LaRochelle twice, and of course it's been Will Skelton every time, and. Francis says Skelton is Freddy Krueger, Hannibal Lecter, Jack the Ripper, Norman Bates, and the Candyman rolled into one. Kieran, what stands out to you about the coverage?
2: Yeah, like just to point. Uh, some of the points Francis was making about particularly how they upset Leinster's game plan and, and, and momentum, as you said, like he pointed out about the staccato nature. But he counted a dozen injury stoppages throughout the game. You know, so that it's, for a team like Leinster. Who, who like to play at a certain tempo, That that is, that, and, and you, we see it all the time, like particularly in, 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 let's say, in Gaelic football and we've seen it with, you know, Atletico Madrid, you know, that some, sometimes it, it, it's genuine. Sometimes then, that, you know, like as he pointed out, three of them were alone at one point, but it, to me, this is all about O'Gara. I mean, like I, I was watching your own coverage, Joy, I, I was up at another Spartan event. Or, um, I got back to see the last 15 minutes and the, you know it was it was some very good stuff getting to see Frog Kearney and Shane Hargan just you know trying to explain what happened to I suppose they still have a lot of their boys there but you know I suppose one thing to be pointed out now that try was coming okay at the yeah. end but you know you could argue that like they were one minute from winning they were one minute from men, winning and um, you know and and just as just as uh, someone who watches rugby but's not off rugby I. I is the sport missing something that leinster didn't have a chance like like the fact that you can take you know 90 seconds to take a kick you know the, the kick at the end I, I just think it's a sport it's missing something and i i found that when i watched an exeter a couple of years ago get a late try but there's not that moment for it i, I just found like but it was still a phenomenal end by them and look it's all about O'Gara, and as you said Joe, like so, uh, one or two of, uh, I was flipping back and forth and it was in BT, they were saying this is, what well, you know, what a start to his career. But obviously, I mean, what he's put in in the last nine years is phenomenal. Mm. Uh, I, I, and the route he went and the humility of the man to, to leave, like he could have easily just got some little coaching gig because of his status within Irish and particularly Munster Rugby to have got somewhere within the system there. And he decides to start off as a kicking coach and, you know, he's talked about um, how he, okay, he had a role and he was working with Johnny in that, but how he he knew where he was in the scheme of things and how he would just take notes on everything that the head coaches were doing at the time, you know, and like he, he went from there, you know, it was at Laurent Lab that he was working with at the time and then how he goes to Crusaders and he's talked about, you know, I know my rugby, but how do I get it across to players? He's dealing with players, you know, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's literally a different language. And how I, I think the humility, and look, this is sort of a, you know, we're in the media game, we're in the media show. What I love about O'Gara, I mean, the contributions he's given you, Joe, and obviously he does a column for us in The Examiner, like he's extremely generous, you know, like we're in an era of media or, or of, of management and, players being so guarded in what they say. I mean, I remember him writing last year before they played Leinster. Oh, He he was able to say that he, he knew that Leo Cullen's setup did a full-on training session with their Champions Cup team the day before they played Munster, you know? Like, he, he would give you a little taste of what's going on in the La Rochelle setup, you know? It, it's not just blanketing Oh, uh, And his column has become... I know of uh, coaching uh, courses, coaching courses and sports science courses going on in this country that that use O'Gara's weekly column as a talking point, you know, and, and, and he, he's now educating coaches, but the, the route he went on in himself, the humility. And like, as people have said, you know, he has the pick of uh, every, every team he will want after the next World it's Cup. It's going to be
0: on the English shortlist. Post World Cup 2023, they have to hire a new coach. He's going look, to I mean, the, be he's the, going to be on their shortlist.
2: Well, look, I mean, here, here we had a situation where, as we said, like, right in 2013... Well, I, I just want to know
0: how Sarah feels about Ron Nogara okay. coaching <laughs> for a moment. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a difficult question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It you, c- is.
0: you come in wearing white and a red rose, maybe then. <laughs> Do you know, um, I, and I, I, I'm pretty sure he said this on the record. In fact, he has. Yeah, I remember talking to him even about Racine. So he, he went over as the kicking coach with no French. Now, to say you're bottom of the rung there is an understatement. I mean, you're you're one step above Kitman. And it was interesting in that first year, he looked at what Racing were doing in defence and he knew he could do much better and he knocked on the door and he sold them his defensive plan. And that was how he went from kicking coach to defensive coach. And on it went from there.
1: He's constantly learning, though. You know, he spoke about the last four weeks and what he learned about Leinster in the last four weeks in the games they played. Mm. And he was open about that, like there isn't a game that he doesn't watch mm. and that he's not learning from. And then he's not afraid of awkward or, or, you know, situations that aren't necessarily good for the team. And he talked about losing 49-0 to Racing live on, you know, on the TV last night and said there was carnage after game, there was infighting. And 12 months later, here we are.
0: Mm.
1: He's not afraid to tell you the ugly mm. and then show you the beauty of, you know, beating Leinster in the last minute.
0: Mm. Yeah, I wonder where he goes. I mean,
2: well, this is it. Like, I mean, I'm just, I'm just got in front of me, like um, the column I wrote on him last year, and you know, far that I, I reread his book, uh, like he's done two books, but you know, in Ungar, he wrote about Munster in my head? I'm going back there someday. That's why I'm doing everything possible to make myself a better coach in order to return to Munster. But going back to what you're saying, oh, Joel, like, I mean, ha- has he outgrown? Yeah, strangely, I, I, I don't he's think he all...
0: goes. I don't think he goes near Munster, Kieran.
2: Yeah, yeah, and uh, like, and as you said, like he he's not going to confine himself just to, he's not confined to the to the Irish position, and you know, like you have, you had there yesterday probably the two leading, and, and you got to give Cullen credit for both just his, he knows Leinster and he also knows how just good Lancaster is and how they dovetail. you you probably had the two best coach coach tickets in European rugby. That's why their two teams were there. Mm. And, you know, just for O'Gara, like, in terms of the, like, you know, how they got there last year, they obviously got to the top 14 final as well. And now they're they're in contention for it. It's just, uh, it's hard to describe just what a job he has done. Like, and, you know, where he has gone, like to to just improve at this art and as you say now like he probably doesn't the, his motivation has changed as you said it's it's you know that he he probably won't be going back to Munster
1: but if you look at English coaches in Irish rugby Irish coaches in English rugby maybe it's not so much of a stretch maybe we just need to be a bit more accommodating and open-minded
0: yeah well I would presume premiership jobs will be offered to him routinely now over the next 18 months two years and when's the right time to go out at the top when you're out of la rochelle you know you've just won the european cup it doesn't get much better but,
2: but, but i think he's loving that project because he said like it is the start of something like i mean they've uh, you know it's maybe underestimated just what how much work he's had to put in there to get them to where they've been the last two years but yeah. like where, where but now that you have this like you know that th- th- he has built a project there that i think uh, i think he well, he let's say he'll be there next season. Yeah. Like no matter what comes in from the Premiership, post World Cup, you know it, it will be interesting. And how much of a draw is it to get anywhere near home? But he has created um, a, a project there that is a dream for him. And it, it's just can't like well you know Leinster have. Like it it must kill Sexton like that. You know like there's that's two finals now they've lost, but it's just, uh, you know, from a, <laughs> I'm sounding like Sarah here, I'm from card two, I, I just think, I just think from a, for someone who like O'Gara is that competition, like to have won it as a player and be the quarterback, like, you know, of that monster team, and to be back here winning it as a coach. I, and, and again, between those two points, the, the, where he started off, as you said, and the bottom ladder in racing. Like, I remember us A being flabbergasted that he, you know, he was calling quits with Munster and then he had Rassing lined up and he was starting there and he was starting at the bottom of that ladder, but he had a journey to go on. By God, he's climbed that ladder. And it's just, I think it's inspirational for any, and humbling for, for anybody involved in in coaching and, and players um, finishing up their careers. Okay.
0: That is enough for the Cork Club and you too can <laughs> put a sock in it. Oh my God, we're all barfing here, like St. Raj. We get it. It's amazing in every way. Can I show you a picture? This is James McCarthy lifting the uh, Leinster Trophy. I'd say if you were to judge body language, he's about as enthused as Mo Salah was last night punching the ground when guess Courtois th- saved his th- th- shot. Th- th- th-
2: th- the guy's thing was that, were, if you remember, it was a Kieran Kilpenny was the captain when they won the O'Byrne Cup. And right. They were delighted with that
0: one. Well, that was
2: the first one that, But like, uh yeah, here's, a picture here. sums it up.
0: It does. He's he can't make eye contact with the stadium. I would say if you haven't seen the photo, he's lifting the trophy. It's uh, it's a grimace. It's like a Oh, you know, sorry for your troubles kind of a face, and he's lifting the the trophy. Uh, so Mark Gallagher, page sixty four, the Mail. The sad thing is nobody cares. The embarrassing non-contest that was yesterday's Leinster football final should give everyone pause, but it won't. Even Dublin's remarkable first-half goal rush was met by nothing more than a shrug of the shoulders. What happened at a poorly attended Crow Park on a sunny May evening should cause discomfort in the corridors of GAA power. That it won't just shows everyone is beyond caring. The Leinster Senior Football Championship has become the most pointless and inconsequential competition in all of sport, and nobody cares. And he goes on to say maybe everyone in GAA headquarters are happy with what a paltry crowd in Croker witnessed yesterday. Perhaps they don't mind that what was hoped to be the most competitive Leinster final in a decade was over after just seven minutes. They created this big blue monster and they've shown little or no appetite in trying to battle it. They simply stood by and allowed it lay waste to Leinster football. Uh, We all know where this is headed. There will be talk this week of how the provincial model is hopelessly skewed, of how Dublin and Kerry simply saunter into an all ireland quarter-final, barely breaking a sweat while Ulster and Connacht, they're tearing strips off each other. Chams' league model will be mentioned once or twice. Despite what drama might occur in Clonus and Salt Hill this afternoon, the provincial model cannot survive. This was only a reminder of that. A cynic might suggest that the GAA scheduled the two games yesterday so they would be overshadowed by events in France. In any other sporting organisation, the lack of competitiveness and the small crowd would cause alarm bells. But there is no sign that this is doing so in Crow Park. Anyone able to disagree with that?
1: No, and there would have been a smaller crowd only for the Leinster ladies football final being as competitive as it was. So the GAA were actually lucky that the ladies football was in Croke Park yesterday because people actually wanted to go to that game Mm. and and see that game. So it says a lot about the game that it's six, seven pages in, you know, in terms of the report, Um, it it has been completely overshadowed by the games that were on yesterday to suggest that the two finals were put on in the shadow of a European Championship final and UCL final. It's kind of disappointing. Um, What is the G.A. focused on and how quickly, you know, can can change be brought about? Mm. Because I had three options yesterday in Dublin. I went to Parnell Park to watch the Camogie, paid 13 euro into that. I watched the ladies football. I turned off after the ladies football.
0: Yeah. It's a struggle, on to have any enthusiasm for the vast majority of the football championship. And has, that has been the well, case well, for a long time.
2: Well, yeah, well, the only thing is, is from here on in, I think we're... It's it's proper stuff. Um, I think the two provincial finals today will be good games, competitive games. You can't say for definite who will win either of them. Um, and and then you are into like the qualifiers start the following week, and it's just going to be a, a, a blitz. And look, I suppose the one upside—could you call it an upside? Because this was the this was the one lens the final we were, we were looking at over the last twelve years, where it, Dublin would be pushed. We thought. You know, Kildare on the back of a good league, w- where it would be worthy opponents. It, w- it was, it was just unbelievable. Like, like Dublin for all their domination, have never scored five goals in the first 25 minutes of the Leinster final. Anyway, so uh, I suppose that the only upside is that look the, the, themselves and Kerry in that All Ireland semi final. Because I don't, for all the talk, I think it's overplayed sometimes about the route other teams have. Kerry wiped the Division One A as well of the league, Division One of the league as well. I know it was only the league. Look, the provincial championships overall and as i said while today will be good it's well documented joe yeah. and i think mark summed it up it was just like that was more uh that was more an opinion piece you know Masquerade in the match report because that's what it deserved you know like he, he took the right angle on it and he said it as well as can be said and look i i think the provincial council have messed up hugely on this by um i i, I still think i'll put it to you this way joe like what, what had been advocated before the proposal B and there was a huge debate about it um, was given the provincial championships at the start of the year. We had a situation actually at the start of this year where there was more there was as many people went down to see Carr Curry in Killarney as there was Carr Curry in the actual championship. And you know that, that early season um, slot where people are mad to watch games, I think would have helped them. You know with gate receipts etc. Whereas where now it's going to go next year. I, I, I do think it, next year's and, and and therefore for the couple of next years the championship format in the Sam Maguire is going to be the biggest fudge of all time between national league, the provincial championships and a and a a, a qualifier or a round robin format where only one team is eliminated after the three games. Um, I, that will be tweaked again in a couple of years. But look, the provincial championships and and you know have outside of Ulster. Have, Possibly two games in Connacht have, have completely lost their luster, but we've known that for a while. But I suppose what was disappointing yesterday was we thought Kildare would be a legit top eight team, would put it up to them. But I, I will say this: it's the football championship from here from today on will be very good. There was good games even in the Talton Cup. We've had the all good game. The Ulster Championship has been decent, and from here on in, I do think football will be really good. And that Dublin Kerry game is going to be the hardest ticket we're talking about ticketing earlier on like I, that is going to be some game because i don't see any team from the qualifiers no matter if it's Mayo or tyrone or whoever coming through it's going to stop those teams winning their all quarter-final and and that game on july the 10th is going to be just it's going to be something else mm-hmm. because the dubs are back like and okay.
0: So, Kieran, you suggested a piece in Manchester United in the Sunday Times. And honestly, I thought, oh, my God, I've talked about Manchester United (laughs) (laughs) so so much this year. I actually can't stomach it. And then I found myself reading pages six, seven and eight of Jonathan Northcroft's piece, Sarah. And I was going, geez, I didn't know that or that's a nice nugget. It's brilliant. So I, I guess what Northcroft has done here is he has said. Ten Hag, this is the club you're about to go into. And he has gone back and given us loads of little anecdotes from David Moyes, Van Gaal, Mourinho, Salsker and their initial period in the club. And it paints a picture of an absolute uh, fiasco. But some of the stories are just great. You're a Man United fan, aren't you?
1: Yeah. So I was last at Man United in January. I was over at Old Trafford with Jamie Wall, Kieran Shannon's buddy. Um,
0: oh, my God. Do you only hang around with Cork people? Is that what this is? What's, <laughs> what's the story you got,
2: got, got to give Jamie credit.
1: Jamie hangs up
0: with other people. Does he? Oh, Did you, you just talk about Raj the head. whole time? <laughs> we Irwin? don't
1: talk about rugby with Jamie because Jamie okay. is not a rugby fan. Okay.
0: Just talk about um, Dennis Irwin, Roy Keane, stuff like that. Stressed.
1: Yeah, so we, we were at the West Ham game. Yeah. And if you remember, 93rd minute we had to hang on to for United to get the winner right and then we were able to tip away but I think that was probably the last bright uh, moment that United had in the season mm. and then after that it obviously capitulated uh, pretty dramatically but about this piece I suppose what I enjoyed most was was the Moyes um, aspect of it okay and he said uh, The way I managed and coached was maybe different to Sir Alex. When it all finished, I wanted to rethink and relook and work out what I could have done better. How did I present myself? And the takeaway was probably that I felt I had to be more positive, better communicator, more approachable. I think I've always been relatively direct and I maybe had to be not quite as direct. And coaching now, I find myself very direct. And I'm looking at players and I'm reading their body language and I'm going, wow, maybe I should step back. Maybe they weren't ready for that. And then I watch Raj and I go, he just lets everything all out there, you know, calling players average and, you know, suggesting that they're not up to the standard, but he's still looking at them. So I don't know what works, what works and what doesn't. But certainly having this kind of feedback from Moy suggests that there is an opportunity to to relook at it afterwards and not feel ashamed, just looking at it as a learning point or an mm. education point.
0: Mm. It's interesting as well. Like So Moyes, for instance, um, and I, so you suspect Moyes has cooperated with this piece. That's my sense, because I think it's briefed very favourably towards Moyes here. And hell, look, I mean, he's done a great job at West Ham, so I think he's won the war in terms of what kind of manager he is. But, you know, things like, I'm just wondering where this came from. Um, Moyes was desperate to get to work immediately, but wasn't able to join United until July 1st. He found himself behind the clock from the start. And the reason that was is, His Everton contract didn't run out until June 30th and United didn't want to pay the compensation to secure him earlier. And so right away there were alarm bells about how things were done under the Glazers. Like Van Gaal is kind of interesting in that initially they uh, talk about how Woodward flew out to try and get Jurgen Klopp. And in Klopp's biography... Uh, which was uh, written by Raphael Honigstein, it seems that the sale pitch bemused Klopp because he was told that Old Trafford, the theatre of dreams, was, quote, like an adult version of Disneyland, which actually sounds a bit weird, frankly. But um, Klopp said he found the whole pitch, quote, a bit unsexy. Woodward denies using the Disneyland line, but was uh, known to be good at that he lost out on uh, Klopp. Do you know what else? This is just how messed up United are. So... When they were trying to get Van Gaal here, they say that they had a template. So this was why they hired Van Gaal. But I just want you to think for a second, Mourinho. Because okay? ultimately they go from Van Gaal to Mourinho. But this was the reasoning for hiring Van Gaal. This is the template. They wanted a manager who would play, one, attacking football. Two, draw from United's academy. Three, be humble off the pitch. Four, arrogant on it. So it's the, the opposite of Jose Mourinho. Like, they, they didn't know what they were doing from one manager to the next. Like, I mean, you'd be tearing your hair out here, Sarah. So Van Gaal, again, talks about how players would receive. And these are pl- like, these are the best of the best. Players received emails outlining areas to improve uh, with video clips attached. Several ignores, ignored these. Van Gaal uh, resorted to tracking software to monitor how long emails were opened for. But even then, certain players simply opened the emails on their mobile phones and wandered off to do something else.
1: Oh, it's great. Uh, you know what? That's happening everywhere now because we have okay. this video analysis piece. I won't name the team that I was involved with, but we knew how often the players were engaging with the video clips that we sent them. And okay. you could see was some players were at it for an hour, an hour and ten minutes and they had watched the whole match. Yeah. Other players had gone in, tapped it 20 seconds and come out and then came to training on Tuesday brazen as if they had mm. completely engaged with it. Everything was being watched. Wow. Yeah. And and is being watched.
0: And did you ever call them out eventually or was it just quietly noted?
1: Uh, I think it was quietly noted on our part we weren't at the point where we could. Yeah. These are amateur players.
0: You they were play also probably breaking all sorts of privacy rules. Were you by tracking their uh, email habits?
1: It's not the email habits. So the software <laughs> is the video. Lats, it's very important you accept please.
0: the cookies. It accept <laughs>
1: No, this was an app that they had signed up to. OK. Yeah. So we just had full view of, of how how much engagement they had with it.
0: No, fair enough. I'm joking, yeah. by the way. I'd I'm like to re- retract that allegation. Like
1: to, I would also like if you did.
0: Yeah. Uh, Mourinho describes the club as very old fashioned, very bureaucratic, a big surprise. So, for instance, like Mourinho wanted to use the gym after training, but he wasn't able to out of errors because there wasn't proper supervision. When he wanted to change his desk in the manager's office or a or gift assigned shirt to a guest, each and every expense, no matter how petty, had to be approved by the club's hierarchy. Welcome to a Glazer run company. And then Zlatan, and this is is actually unbelievable, really, like what kind of football club is this at this stage? Abramovich cites Manchester United deducting one pound from his salary for drinking hotel room fruit juice on first team duty. And also been asked to show my papers just to get into the training ground. I would lower my window and say to the person at the gate, "Listen, my friend, I've been coming here every day for a month. I'm the best player in the world. If you still don't recognise me, you're in the wrong job." So, for I that alone, know. it
2: was for that alone. I mean, look, to me, this is what the Sunday Times is at its best. And you know, a, a few times I've been on here, Joe. I've talked, I've lamented how they haven't gone for more farm Reads, but this is like this goes over three and a half pages, and it's only part one. This is only the managers, so there's huge work being put into this, as you said. Like the level of anecdote, um, he has contacted multiple sources on this. Like as you said, he obviously was talking to Moyes, but you know he's talked to people close to Van Gaal, you know, and obviously Van Gaal had worked with top clubs, and you know he was comparing it to being, let's say, at Munich where, you know, you've got, he, he talked to uh, Hoek, who had been his number two in goalkeeping coach, and he says, you know, in your time at Bayern, you know, you had the likes of Hines and Ruminege, who have a clear vision and philosophy, you can always lean on them, and they're also very very capable of judging what is going on. The work of a manager, like, both that support and credibility and, and making this one of the work for you just isn't there, because look, what comes across in this is, like there's a common denominator here and it's the culture of the glazers. and you gave the example of, of a ravenbridge Zlatan, like how th- there's multiple examples of that. And, and the line is is you know it's about the bottom line over the score line. like how the players like Sarah works with county teams, you know obviously nowhere near the budget of Man United teams club teams getting access to swimming pools, let's say for recovery, and the notion that man United. You know, could not undergo out of hours hydrotherapy in Carrington because no lifeguard was available to oversee the session. Like, like good club teams in the J A would put in protocols to ensure that that is put in place. And this is supposed to be the biggest club in the world. And the the it's a it's a fascinating piece because what what a challenge of journalism is is a story that's well documented and, and to tell us new stories that go with it. And that's what Norcraft has done here. Uh, recommended it to me, along with maybe the piece in the business post. It's, it's the best uh, read uh, in the papers today.
0: Yeah, really good. And also what comes across, we don't have time to get into it, but just the constant theme of late is that this dressing room is toxic. A, like There are some really deplorable professionals in that dressing room. So it's
1: shortcuts everywhere, shortcuts, shortcuts off the pitch, yeah. shortcuts on the pitch. Uh, Tommaso Shea has a really good podcast with Jim McGuinness uh, I listened to it this week Oh yeah I meant to Really really good podcast and basically Jim McGuinness talks about getting rid of the shortcuts Okay and that's how ultimately Donegal won their fated all-arm title
0: Is he still as determined as ever to make it in the world of football soccer? Yes Yeah
1: Yes and he's he speaks very passionately about how much he has worked in that environment and how long it's taken and we're talking about Raj yeah. bottom step he said I went in at the very bottom step yeah, yeah, so yeah. to get where I've had to go and the hours that I've had to put in. I just can't walk away from it.
0: Now. I really hope he does it. It would just be such a story. Uh, we are quickly running out of time. You picked out two pieces. Kieran referenced one of them. There is a piece and it's a, it's an amazingly um, in-depth, well-researched piece on sports washing, Saudi sports washing in particular in the Sunday Business Post. And then there's Dr. Mary McInerney, who has been a doctor in the GAA for uh, decades since the '70s. Really, that's in the Sunday Independent. We might we might wangle four or five minutes on each, which I know is not uh, nearly enough. So the Sunday Business Post uh, piece is in the it's in the Post Plus, and their jumping off point is that Phil Mickelson interview with Alan Shipnock. Where he's like, "Look, I know they're sports washing and they're scary mother efforts, and they kill journalists and they execute people for being gay. But you know, there's lots of money at play, and Mickelson hasn't played golf since, since those comments leaked out. But it's Barry J. White and Aaron Rogan here who uh, picked through the Saudi efforts at large, the one point five billion they've spent in recent times.
1: What I loved about the piece, I suppose, is, is the detail which they've gone into. Mm. I didn't realise that Saudi Arabia had spent so much money. So they've gone in detail here on they've spent one point five billion on the hosting of sporting events in recent years, as well as five hundred million in current bids and eight hundred million offered in failed bids. That's an incredible amount of money. Yeah. According to research, um, that includes more than 660 million on motor sports, including Formula One, 500 million on a 10 year deal with the World Wrestling Entertainment Federation, 169 million on football, excluding Newcastle's interest, 107 million on boxing, 60 million on the Saudi Cup horse racing, and 20 million on golf, not including the live event. Now, I'm asking myself in order to avoid it, what am I going to watch? Yeah. You know, it's incredibly hard if if all of this money has been pumped into essentially every single item that I'm watching on the telly right now. Where am I going to go?
0: And that's not to mention the aspects of our economy increasingly. If, I mean, if you are pitching Saudi Arabia as this uh, repressive, awful regime, this piece, I think it's right to point this out because sport is very much under the microscope. And to be fair, that's because of sport's place in Society, that is certainly where the reputation has been laundered. But if we're just talking about economics, there's no economic stand around the world. Every year, Ireland trades billions of euro worth of chemicals, food, agriculture uh, products, as well as tens of millions worth of so called dual use goods, which are designed as uh, equipment which could have civilian or military use, such as aeronautics. Moreover, the Irish Stock Exchange has become a financing hope for the Saudi government, and we've seen Leo Veradkar over there uh, recently. So, certainly, I think sport can turn around to pretty much every government in the world and say, well, hang on here but the reality is uh, and this piece you know talks about the Newcastle fans celebrating Saudi investment in their club with um, the country's flag prominent and people in Bin Salman masks and singing F off Man City we're richer than you Uh, the Irish Stock Exchange doesn't uh, tend to prompt that kind of um reaction so that that's the special place sport has and that's why we talk about sports washing like in the piece they talk about how saudi is trying to prepare for a post-oil future it's got a looming employment crisis because there are large numbers of saudis entering the workforce every year there aren't many jobs for them so the country's trying to diversify and develop new sectors of the economy because the saudi ruling family are worried that lots of young people without jobs is going to create a major risk and they look at the arab spring of 2011, and they're terrified of that happening. So uh, this piece says the sports washing campaign is running in tandem with efforts to develop tourism and foreign direct investments. Saudi Arabia is trying to position itself for decades to come, or certainly the ruling family is.
1: But I suppose crucially in this piece, it talks about uh, governments suggesting that by engaging with Saudi Arabia, they may become less reprehensible. And Lynch is saying here in this piece, well, actually, they're trying to align themselves with China. And they're looking for an autocratic state. They're they're suggesting that they don't want people to have a, an opinion, a voice to be represented. You know, they're, they're telling you already that they're not going to change. But yet you're essentially whitewashing uh, a scenario by saying, well, maybe if we engage with them, be, they'll become less representative Such a line
0: that, isn't it's it?
1: It's incredible. incredible. Yeah. I
0: don't even know if the people who say that believe it, but. If they do believe it, they need to think about it for five minutes.
1: I, I can't. I can't even say it. As, as they said at the back of, of the piece here, you know, sport can create change. Um, our message is clear. Women's rights campaigners remain in prison. Democrats and minority rights campaigners continue to be tortured. Yemen is still being bombed. Jamal Kazagaki is still dead.
0: Mm. And the piece also points out like Irish racing with Godolphin and even the recent funding of the cura it was uh, very much courtesy in part but significant amount of the uh, Judmont horse breeding operation which is owned by the family of Khalid bin Abdullah al Sa'ad, who was uh, before his death high profile member of the House of Saad and uh, Godolphin owned by the family of Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid al-Maktoum the uh, Vice President Prime Minister of the United Arab Emirates and ruler of Dubai and he's been criticised in recent years not least for the apparent kidnapping of one of his daughters so the peace went to the HRI they went to the IHRB and really were given no comment on this area in effect one or two boilerplate statements after the individuals they approached decided not to comment so Irish racing I think it's almost caught up in Irish racing in that this link was before the concept of sports washing was discussed so much and now I think suddenly they're uh, realizing that uh, the questions are going to come for them as well. they are suggesting yes,
1: that their legacy relationships though here and Joe show you know and
0: this isn't sports washing because it was before sports washing was a policy almost years ago. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: and and then they're suggesting that well unless the government you know takes a stance we're not taking a stance yeah.
0: because we're
1: going to be led by what the government says. So
0: yeah yeah I mean I do sympathy for like this 40 year old Relationship and now suddenly sports washing is is, is all the talk. But um, they're going to be asked questions regardless. I think Kieran, you thought the piece was good.
2: I did. Um, in fairness to both Barry Wade and uh, Aaron Rogan, they put in the cause. They contextualise it very well. And, and the big thing for me was how you know the the Irish angle, um, particularly with, with with horse racing. But as you said, this relationship goes way back pre sports washing and. The thing is you nearly feel that it's beyond the point of no return. You know, like and like you are looking at a league like the Premier League, which is the biggest. You know, along with the NFL, the biggest league in world sport, and how they had no element of, you know, who who we are allowing to come in and be owners on this, and and therefore you've had slippage all throughout. I mean, we we're in an innocent innocent era at the start of the Premier League era, where you know. You look at Walker from Blackburn, a steel magnet, and people thought that was that was just buying your way to a Premier League. But there was a guy invested with his community who was funding, yeah, that they could buy an Allen share, etc. You know, it, it, it was nearly innocent when when you look at it and, and, and just as it just crept in, you know, and the oil money has just come in it's, it's now like and therefore we have a situation like where Newcastle who were the Premier League to really stand up there because of who they had previously allowed in it, it's and and therefore but yet I think the piece finishes with the point and a reminder that uh, Sarah just read it, read it there quoted it there where sport has created change you take you take whole sport was I would say one of the key strands to continue just chipping away and highlighting what how awful apartheid was. And, 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 and South Africa, like, and, you know, we, we're, we're on there about, because sports figures and the, what they're pointing out there are a few contributors to the piece about the the power that athletes individually can have. And, you know, let's say even there in America, there's a couple of the pieces allude to David Walsh's back page piece in the Sunday Times about Steve Kerr highlighting what happened in Texas and the gun law reform that needs to, to happen and um, sports athletes and while well, Lewis Hamilton has gone there to a certain point he's still going over there and what, what a few of the contributors in the piece pointed out is it, it takes nearly someone to say well no I'm not going over there obviously there's a debate going on in golf at the moment but just the pervasiveness of it, it it's 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 quite stunning and um unfortunately like it's are, are athletes going to stand up and say, uh, uh, you know, let's say, are players turning down Man City? Are um, players turning down Newcastle because of where the money's coming from? You know, we, we haven't heard many no. players take that stand.
0: No, the country. Um, we're so out of time, and yet I do want to mention this piece because this was about the first piece you mentioned this morning, and it's Dr. Mary McInerney. So, 1978, she became the Galway team doctor, first woman to assume a position like that in certainly GA, maybe Irish sport. And uh, it's a great interview, Dermot Crowe and Sunday Independent.
1: I loved it. It was my favorite piece of the weekend and it was very stark for me. You know, some of the imagery she's talking about bringing her sons who were three and five at the time to Galway training and they were dressed in their pyjamas and uh, with coats on and she'd bring them home to bed after the training session had finished. There were so many things about it. And you'll love it when you actually read it. She talks about instances where players refuse to come off the pitch. You know, she's talking here about um, she said, Dara, my middle son, at one stage idolised Iggy Clark. He said to me, Mum, when I grow up, I'm going to change my name. And I said, what are you going to change it to? And he said, Dara Iggy Clark McInerney. But she's talking about when Iggy doesn't refuses to come off the pitch after a big injury and, uh, you know, blood streaming out of his head. But she talks about five or six different instances. Mm. The color in the pieces is is, is absolutely stunning. But my favorite piece is probably Con Murphy, the famous Cork doctor. And uh, he suggests that uh, one thing that frightened me was that she was as fast as me going onto the pitch. I remember in particular Pat Hartnett and Brendan Linsky clash in 86, the All-Ireland final. and We both ran in, but I would say she was first in. That's a great um, thing to admit, you know, <laughs> <laughs> in, in the newspaper.
0: The picture's great as well. She's holding up the 1980 All-Ireland Medal won by Niall McInerney. Um, so it's 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 a great chance. She talks about being in you know, yeah, like eight, eight months, eight months pregnant, trying to kneel down and, and sew a player up who's, who's cut open and, and pieces like that <gasps> are great.
2: She was one of the first people to campaign for compulsory helmets for kids. You know, she yeah. was campaigning for that in the late 70s. and it took a long time for it to come but eventually it did there's great color in it it was a great angle for Dermot to go with you know again a non obvious one wasn't really the to an event but it, it's it, it was a, it's there's great color in it she's lived that wife... that she's she's lived a, a serious life that woman because you know like um like she's you know her her husband died um, just last year the anniversary's coming up um but she was um, a groundbreaker, you know, and even uh, just again, even on the the helmets, I, I just found that fascinating that it took us so long to get there. But um, no, that's that's a top piece. I also just had uh, uh, there was a good piece by um, because what you sometimes for someone like myself who's been around, you know, the, the Sean Brown piece that uh, Michael Foley has done that has been documented before, but Mike, I suppose with Derry being back in an Ulster final. You know, it points out that it's 25 years on and still the family are looking for justice. And it's uh, that piece is worth checking out as
0: well. Mm, Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Mary McInerney, page 16, 17 of the Sunday Independent. We are out of time. My thanks to you both. So the Cork Mafia were (laughs) Sarah O'Donovan and Kieran Shannon and Roger's The Greatest Thing. And sliced bread, okay? We're on the record. It's good thing
2: you didn't have us last week talking about, uh, about Roy, okay? So, oh, yeah, so geez. Nick McCarthy
0: would have good, got a good doing over it. Uh, thanks, guys. Right. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Okay,
2: sounds good. The Sunday Papers
1: on Off the Ball.